many, many years ago, like 47 years ago, I think it was, I was one of the founding mothers and of parents of the Golden Link Folk Singing Society. And now um, I make a point of getting to many of those Tuesday night sing-arounds. For uh, one of the better things that happened was that the founding parents of it didn't run it for the last 47 years. So we have something that's viable that, that you know, other people take part in. And I think that I'm really proud of that. But now I'm thinking, well, this is wonderful. Tuesday night, I have a place to go sit in a circle and lead a song and hear all this group singing. So um, I want to take advantage of, of the music making that's in Rochester. Enjoying your own legacy. Yeah, I know. I thought, hey, I just helped start this. I might as well enjoy that. And occasionally, you know, I'll come in and somebody will say, now, who are you? And I thought, well, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> who are you? <laughs> and then um, many years ago, 1972, I think it was, my husband, Tom Bohr, who has, has a whole distinct life of his own as an actor and director and things, he made a harpsichord for me, which is certainly more than you could ask of most husbands. He made this wonderful harpsichord, and off and on I played it, but mostly off. And in the last few years, I've decided I will play my harpsichord. So harpsichords, I mean, if you think a hammered dulcimer is finicky and hard to tune, you have never dealt up close and personal with a harpsichord. It is the most finicky instrument in the world, and there's a good reason why the piano took over. It is full of little things that pluck on strings. Those little things are now made out of plastic. They used to be made out of quill, and they fall off, and they break, and things happen. How often do you have to tune it? Well, you have to tune it. It sort of all syncs together. So unless I'm going to play, I you know, if once a week or something like that. But um, if you're going to have a rehearsal that day, <laughs> you tune it up until the moment they walk in the door, <laughs> because it you know it has long strings. The longer the string, the more likely it is to get out of tune. Not many people can say they have a harpsichord <laughs> at home. Yeah, well, we have a, a piano. We have a grand piano that had been my grandmother's, and she gave it to me. So that's been my piano my whole life. So it's we have that. We have the harpsichord, and we have a player piano in the living room. So when people walk into our house, <laughs> they have a moment of like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> this is too much to how many with. Now, how many hammered dulcimers do you have? Well, I have a whole bunch because I do lease them. And I have a group of young students that I'm working with on a, a pilot program of teaching kids how to play the hammer dulcimer, and they're at the Nazareth Elementary School. So I've acquired some smaller instruments for them. What do you think the kids like about playing the hammer dulcimer? I, I think they like the physical thing. We're hitting something. And um, they're kind of specially chosen. I've worked with the um, music teacher, their sister, Anita, and um, we're, we're just seeing how, if they can have fun and how, how fast it takes them to, to learn this instrument. And they get a lot of uh, positive feedback from other kids at the school. So um, this grew out of my um, attending worldwide conferences on the hammer dulcimer. So the hammer dulcimer and its family, trapezoid-shaped instruments that you whack at, um, is found all over the world. And every two years, someplace on the planet, um, we have a meeting. So I've gone to most all of the meetings since 2005. 
And um, at these meetings, there's always groups of kids playing. Kids, we have fifth, sixth, seventh, and, and young teenagers playing. They are having a ball. They're having a wonderful time. And sometimes they are really loud and fast. And, you know, what, what could be more fun than loud and fast? So I just thought American kids could do that. We just don't really have the culture for them to learn. So I'm, I'm learning how, how to teach them. And, um, you know, things happen. First of all, they can take the instruments home. At first, we didn't know how that would work out. But it's sort of self-selected. If they're in a household with younger siblings and stuff, their, their decision is maybe I won't take it home. But s several of them take it home regularly. And then uh, in, our, in our meeting yesterday, we had a broken hammer. Well, you know, if you're going to play a hammer dulcimer with a long, slender wooden thing, it breaks. So the kid was very nice kid. He said, I didn't mean to break it. I said, I know you didn't. He was messing around with it a little bit. But what he didn't know is that if you get part of it caught under a string of the hammer and then you even touch lightly the other part of it, it's going to break in the middle. And that, that part he didn't know. He said, I didn't know it would break so easily. <laughs> I said, well... I said, now you really have to become a dulcimer player because you've broken a hammer, and that means you're in the club for sure. Because <laughs> I've broken lots of hammers. I have, I have a whole, you know, drawer full of broken hammers. That's great. Now, as a teacher with the kids, working with these kids, are you tapping into your own experience as a kid? You started making music when you were, what, five? Yes. I don't remember not making music, and I don't really remember choosing to do it. Uh, you know, I am, courtesy of the fact that you get to celebrate my birthday every year, which I really like, 77 whole years old. And, and it used to be when your parents told you to do something, that was pretty much what you did. This whole thing of having infinite amounts of choice as a child is um, a new thing. <laughs> Some of us as parents and grandparents have to get used to. But um, evidently, I showed some genuine interest in playing the piano and that evidently from the stories my mother says which may have become embellished over the years I would stand at the piano with my hands above you know and and make nice music she said you never banged on the piano so that was a good sign uh, my first teacher I had it when I was five and her name was Miss Eula Sledge and evidently she tapped my knuckles when I did something wrong so that only lasted a year my mother said no wait a minute Eula Sledge that was her name <laughs> yeah. I you never forget names like that so anyway um, then the next year I began with a teacher that came to our house that this is and her name was Irma Beck and she was born in Germany and um, I actually stayed with her entire family, and so there was like a hierarchy. You started with Miss Miss Beck, and um, she called me Meetsy, and so that's that's when everybody calls me Meetsy. I'm immediately brought back to that. So she came to the house, and um, she was a very musical person. And but I realized, I mean, I'm even realizing it here that when somebody's taking a lesson in the house, the rest of the household has to kind of stop and be quiet and all my life people did things that arranged for me to have music so I don't think I think maybe talent is a tiny bit of this deal 
But I think the big thing that goes on with somebody that becomes a, a musician and a music maker is that they have tremendous amount of support from family. That's the time put in and that support. Yeah. You can, you can be as talented in, as you want to be, and if you can't get to the lesson or nobody makes time for you to practice or nobody says, what's your new piece, uh, you're, you're not going to you're going to find something that you get better feedback from. So I always got good feedback. And my, and my grandfather um, would come and visit us, and, and he would say, play, play me something you're working on. All This was all the way through junior high, as long as he was living. And I'd play something, and he would say, that's coming along. So, I mean, you know, nobody was lying to me. It was, it was coming along. But, I mean, he showed interest. He sat down, came into the house, sat down in the living room, and listened. And I would say, if parents want to do something good for their kid, you know, we know that music helps you in school and all these good things, but the main thing is go listen to them. And don't be critical, like, oh, my goodness, you missed a note there. Of course you missed a note. <sighs> When does that go too far in terms of being too invested? I mean, we hear stories sometimes of helicopter parents in all fields, not just music, but yeah. in so many aspects of life where kids are so stressed out and so like disenchanted uh, with whatever field their parents want them to pursue. Well, that's this whole thing. You know, your parents want them you to do something, so you need to rebel and go do something else. At one time, I did go through something where I was telling my mother I didn't want to play music and I think she coaxed me along by saying well let's just keep at it for now and you know as a parent instead of saying boy you have to do this and or I've spent money on your instrument and things like that uh, <sighs> you know of course um, but but I mean people do this in sports how many boys who play little league are going to be in major leagues and you know spend the rest of their life playing baseball almost none so we can sort of see it in one thing, but we can't see it in, in music. Um, you have to, one, one thing is that I, when I've seen kids abroad from other countries play dulcimer and, and other instruments with it, um, it seems to fit into their um, social life in, in a significant way. And I think making music as a group is, is one of the big keys. And as a pianist, I didn't do nearly enough of that. So if I were going to do something over again, I would I would play an orchestral instrument as well as a piano. Interesting. I, I think pianists should, um, I mean, you don't really get rhythm till you're really trying to stay with other people. And, and as a pianist, um, you have a lot of leeway. And we spend a lot of time in the Romantic era so we have rubato and things like that. Well, if you're in a whole orchestra, that rubato's got to be a group effort. <laughs> you got to do the same thing as everybody else is doing. What about accompanying? I mean, that's sort of a group effort, right? Yeah, I did some accompanying as a kid. And I remember that um, at my church, I grew up in the Methodist church, and there's a lot of music there. I could accompany at, for Sunday school. So that was a, that became productive. And... Um, and fun. I got some recognition, the older kid playing. And I don't know how much help I was for them. But I know a lot of hymns. <laughs> I 
because the Methodist Church has always had lots of lots of good hymns. And I sang in choirs. The other thing that's really important that I was doing and looking back on it thinking, boy, that's an important part of music education is I sang. I sang in choirs. I sang at church. I went to a camp um, in Texas. I grew up in Dallas. And so one of the things in the hottest, this was pre-air-conditioned Dallas, that you would do is you would go off to camp in what was called the hill country. And it wasn't much cooler, but it was a tiny bit cooler. And also you swam in a, in a stream, the Guadalupe, and uh, it was cold. <laughs> so you experienced some temperature. And we had lots of singing at this camp. We were in tribes, and there was like a singing contest. And there was singing at the dinner table and singing as you were walking around the camp. That's a wonderful experience as a musician. You should do a lot of singing because that's, you know, you're you're making music inside of yourself. It's interesting you should say that. I audited a class at the Eastman School a few years ago in French lyric diction. Ah. And our final exam was supposed to be everyone singing an, a French art song in front of the class. Most of the kids in the class, A, were, you know, my children's age, and B, were uh, piano students. And yeah. None of them. They rebelled, and none of them <laughs> wanted to sing. And so we just had sort of these uh, recitations. You know, we spoke yeah. the songs. But, yeah, it was, it was a big missing component for me, you know. Yeah. It would be good for them. It would have been good for them if they had been forced to sing. <laughs> just maybe, maybe not a whole art song, but something something a little and then along the way um i got interested in folk music kind of because folk music well i was already playing music in the church and i was playing as an organist and some at some point i kind of morphed into an organist from a pianist and um i i needed to play the guitar because that's what went with things so because the first time i used the guitar in a church service it was so terrible because I asked the guitarist to do a lot of very non-guitar type things because I didn't know. So um, there was a piece of music like an E flat. I mean, that's just a ridiculous key. <laughs> but it seems to be a popular one because it's a little higher than D and voices resonate a little bit more. So, But E flat is not a guitar key, not even close. You do things in E major. Now that's that's quite a good one. So after that first experience, this was a nice kid, um, and and he never said, you know, you're, this is totally impossible. But but he gradually, I realized, well, if I just learned to play myself, this would make communication a lot better, which it did. So I got interested in playing the guitar in church, and this was all about in the 1960s, and. Um, there's a lot of kind of folky stuff entering the church. Mainly, mainly the Roman Catholic Church that hadn't had any congregational singing went from no congregational singing to, you know, the praise bands with, with guitars and stuff. So and some of the music that was coming out uh, was really terrible, <laughs> just awful. So I thought there's got to be something better that's easier that's kind of folky. So I went to a folk festival uh, Fox Hollow, in, which is north north of Albany, uh, practically in Massachusetts. And um, I went to this folk festival, and they were playing hymns, shape note hymns, spirituals, all kinds of things. And nobody had any written music. That was one little thing I noticed. <laughs> they, they knew everything. And I did hear a lot of good 
new music for churches. But I also heard a hammered dulcimer. So that was 1969. So I heard my first hammered dulcimer when I was about 28. So I tell people, you know, people say, oh, well, did you, did you start when you were a child? I said, no, not, not actually. But I, two people came out on stage and um, played this thing, which I had never seen before. And um, they laughed. They dropped their hammers. They missed notes. <laughs> I mean, they, they did all the things that, that you know, if you're going to be a classical performer, you can never do. And I thought, I want to do that. <laughs> Let me ask you about what you're thinking about now in terms of making music moving forward. What is being, what is harder for you? Well, one of the things is, is around, certainly, is transportation. You know, I don't want to drive at night. I don't want to drive. I'll drive at night in the city because there are lights and I know where I'm going. And I live in the city, which is very, very handy. But I don't want to drive out in the country at night. So I... Um, I tend to sort of think it'll all work out, but I have to be more careful to figure out jobs. If, if I take a job, I've got to figure out how I'm going to get there, not by myself at night. Um, and I used to do a lot of traveling, you know, travel 100 and some odd miles and perform and sometimes stay overnight and come back, and I don't do that anymore. It's just kind of overwhelming. So I have to sort of figure out how I can do what I want to do and... Um, get transported there. <laughs> um, everybody thinks about that. So um, I want to play more harpsichord music. I didn't get enough Baroque music, I must say. Um, and if I get a chance to do some more teaching, I taught music history, and um, I'd like to do some form of teaching that again, maybe Oasis or who knows, something. And then I, I want to teach, I want to keep moving along with this idea of teaching young people. And exactly where that's going to go, I don't know. Um, so. Are there, are there other hammered dulcimer enclaves of kids playing hammered dulcimers? Around? Not so much in the United States. Um, very few. But um, that's what one of the things I'm hoping is that somebody will look at this and say, well, I could do that with my kids, or I could do that better. That's wonderful, you know, um, because they need to see other kids playing. How can a kid, if someone's hearing this right now and they think, well, I want to get involved in that, how can they do that? Well, um, actually, at Eastman, for like 14 years, I've taught classes in Hammer Dulcimer. And for 10 years, we've had a performing ensemble. And any of the people in the performing ensemble are totally qualified to teach other people. And in fact, a number of them do. A number of them are teaching other, mainly adults, but they can certainly teach kids. So the thing is, find us. <laughs> and the first place to start is something that's as near to you as possible. Because you need to, and, and um, I rent dulcimers, other people rent dulcimers, so you can try it out. So that would be the way to go. Find us at, at Eastman Community Music School. And I must say, the Community Music School has been very, very supportive all the way along of having hammered dulcimers. They, they're not really aware of how unusual it is to have a hammered dulcimer class going on um, in your conservatory kind of training. Um, and my feeling about the kids is that, okay, so they don't all become hammered dulcimer players out of the, I mean, what if I had one or two out of 12 or 15 kids that I encounter? 
um, they've had an experience. We, we do a lot of listening. I'm thinking if, I, if I'm not teaching hammer dulcimer, I'm certainly teaching listening. <laughs> How far does a melody go up? When does it start? You know, okay, watch everybody. Watch, watch, watch. We're always, you know, and sometimes they like, I'm ready, I'm ready, I know how to play this. And then they start like, wait, wait, wait. It's not only you know how to play it, but we have to start together. And I have some other members of the, of the striking strings, our performing group, are helping me with this teaching. So um, we need to keep, we need to find more kids playing. Well, you're teaching eye-hand coordination. <laughs> You yeah, know, you're teaching. the whole thing. Yeah. So how much does a hammer dulcimer weigh? I mean, is it like a tuba? Is it really no, hard to get No, it's much better than that. Oh, they weigh anywhere from 13 to 15, 16 pounds. That's not too hard. To no, I, I try to, for the kids, I've, I've picked out uh, dulcimers that are lighter. Um, tuning is a problem. Right now, I've, I've, I've observed how these other groups did. Mostly adults tune their instrument. Uh, the longer they play, the more, the better they get at it, and with electronic tuners and things like that. And now, most of these kids, I have to say, have phones, and there's a tuning app, and it's free, or $2 or something like that. So um, that would be something I want kids to be able to do maybe at the end of the second year is to tune their own instrument. Very cool. That is so cool. <laughs> Seems like there's a lot of things in Rochester like that, that there's something happening here that people just don't know about. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, my, I think that these kids would learn as they, as they get with skills. I'd like for them to go into the community and play for people. Not in a big concert, but how about a, a little concert at St. John's Meadows or someplace or um, St. Anne's or something like that and get some feedback that... They're doing something special. Interesting. Well, maybe someday, you know, they'll start living their lives, and then they'll get to a point, and they'll think they'll have these memories of playing this instrument. They could come back to it, oh, too. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, that's also part of it. Planted the seed. It's accessible. You can learn to do this. If you don't learn to do it right now, it's okay. It's basically a percussion instrument. Well, in lots of ways, it is. It is, definitely. Yeah. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you want to talk about? <laughs> well, I have, you know, we have the five kids and the five grandkids, and we're hyper proud of them. Mm -hmm. So um, they're all doing, they're all doing good. Your life is very rich. It is. It is. And, uh, you know, as long as my husband and I hold on to our health, and that that is one of the, that's an if. You know, you don't get to, <laughs> you don't get to make all the choices. But um, we're going to be busy and the community. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Great to see you.